Hi, and welcome to the Rereaders. In this week's podcast, well, we're back. After a break Yay. of nearly 18 months, we have an exciting new limited season of podcast episodes for you. I'm your host, Sam Twyford-Moore, and over the next few months, I'll be speaking to a number of special guests about reading, the writers they regularly revisit, and individual pieces of their writing they indeed reread. My sincere thanks to Dion Kagan, Mel Campbell, and Arij Nur, who ran the rereaders through 2017 and 2018, and who produced some stellar episodes of diverse literary and cultural criticism, featuring a wide range of emerging critics in Melbourne. You can check out those episodes on our archive on our website, www.therereaders.com. My first guest for this new series is very special indeed, as she is one of the co-founding hosts of this very podcast all the way back in 2011. Welcome back to the re-readers, Fiona Wright. I am so stoked to be here, Sam. Hello. Hello. We might also be hearing a, a little animal in the background. Yes, Virginia Wolf, my assistant's dog, is with us today. How lucky we have her in the studio. Yeah, and she's um, desperate to sit on Sam's knee rather than <laughs> mine, so I'm feeling a bit miffed about that. She can come around the recording desk <laughs> if she likes. Uh, she's bringing great energy. I do have to introduce you, Fiona, because your credentials are so impressive. Fiona Wright is a writer, editor, and critic from Sydney. Her book of essays, Small Acts of Disappearance, Essays on Hunger, won the 2016 Nita B. Kibble Award and the Queensland Literary Award for Nonfiction, and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Her poetry collection, Knuckled, won the 2012 Dame Mary Gilmore Award, while Domestic Interior was shortlisted for the 2018 Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. Her most recent book of essays, The World Was Whole, was longlisted for the 2019 Stella Prize. So, Fiona, the last episode you were on was back in 2012. What and were we, we talking about? And we would have rightly called you a poet back then. <laughs> I think Knuckled came out the year that we were doing yeah, the that episodes. Yeah, that was 2011, I think. But now, eight years later, you could rightly be described as one of Australia's most well-known essayists. How unbelievable is that? It's so strange. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> How was that journey from poet to essayist? You know, it was entirely um, accidental and unexpected that I sort of I started writing the essays in small acts really kind of on the side and not really knowing what I was doing in, in any sense of it. I, you know, I knew I, I had to write about what had happened to me. <laughs> Sorry. We've got Ginny uh, jumping up on my lap. She wants to uh, jump on the microphone too. Hello, Ginny. Oh, she just loves you so much. It's <laughs> Let's it's not rude. edit this out because she is an integral part of this conversation. Uh, I was thinking about... I swear she's fully trained and she normally behaves. She is. She's being very good. She just loves me. I can't... Yeah, help. I know. Uh, I was thinking about that in terms of the start of Small Acts of Disappearance because I remember you did a reading at Sydney Writers Festival maybe in 2012 mm, or 2011 mm. even where you read one of the pieces that went on to be in the collection and it was a bit of an epiphany for you in terms of yeah, it was, it was what the, you were saying in front of a live audience. Yeah, it was the very first piece, the piece um, I think it's called In Colombo now that's set in Sri Lanka and talking about the time I spent working as a journalist there and was suddenly kind of face-to-face -face with a kind of political hunger. I'd never figured out how to feel about that, mm -hmm. really. Um, you know, it was a very strange experience to be there 
and to be hungry and, and, you know, have having trouble with food, I would have phrased it at the time as they didn't have any choice in the matter. You know, now I recognise that I didn't either. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's, it was a very weird thing. The thing I remember most about that night is that I didn't tell my parents what I was going to say. <laughs> and I just kind of looked up halfway through and they were sitting kind of near the front, just like stricken. And I was like, oh, shit, I probably should have done that. <laughs> I remember your publisher was in the audience as well. Yeah. He, he came up to you afterwards and yeah. said, this needs to be a book. Right? Yeah. Ivor and Evelyn were both both in the audience from Giramondo. And I was sort of hoping that they'd say that. <laughs> um, yeah, but they were very supportive of the project right from... Right, right from the beginning. And it's and in hindsight too, I don't think it's a book that could have come out at the time uh, through any other publisher. No. Um, certainly there weren't essay collections from emerging writers around at the time and I'm, I'm really thrilled that there are now. This is going to be a, uh, a podcast series about reading and rereading, going back to the original title uh, of this podcast uh, in general. Uh, you are one of the great readers in my life you're reading constantly both for pleasure and for professional purposes how much time do you get to actually reread and revisit books it's yeah it's interesting I don't do it all that often normally I do it when I have a book in mind that I'm kind of working on an essay or I have an idea and it reminds me of a book that I've read before and I want to go back and sort of see if it strikes me afresh one of the things that I like most about rereading suddenly you get old enough to have you know, a decade's distance from when you first read a book and, you know, you change so much in that time. So so what you bring to the book is entirely different. And I think you also get a vision of your younger self mm. who was reading that book at the first time. I love the kind of layered temporality yeah. of that. Well, there's a book out at the moment um, by Vivian Gornick, mm. uh, which is called Unfinished Business Notes on a Chronic Rereader, which is available in Australia through Black Ink. And in that she writes... It was at that moment, I think, that I began rereading because from then on it was to the books that had become my intimates that I would turn and turn again, not only for the transporting pleasure of the story itself, but also to understand what I was living through and what I was to make of it. I think in small acts of disappearance, even there, you're kind of revisiting some Mm-mm. central texts to your life. You know, there's a long essay on Christina Stead yeah. and, and re-looking at that work through different eyes I suppose specifically kind of uh, health diagnoses yeah yeah I think that was the first and that was a really early essay in that collection too one of the one of the first ones that I wrote where I was looking back at books and it, and it was for that exact reason that I'd remembered reading it uh, in the year that I got sick really and having these discussions you know it was a, it was a uni text and we were talking a lot in class about modernism and about desire and some of the formal stuff in the book. But the thing that really struck me when I was reading it the first time are these long descriptions of the main character walking. Mm. Uh, She's doing it to save money, allegedly. And so she walks to work from Circular Quay to Redfern and back each day, which takes about an hour. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, I've got a bit of a problem with long walks myself, but they're these kind of physical descriptions of the body just dragging because she's malnourished as well she's eating very sparsely again theoretically to save money and I'd never seen descriptions of the way that my body was feeling Mm. written like that before and so I was really only rereading that book to 
you know, to get those descriptions. And I, and I realised that her character has this obsession with striving and perfection and kind of denying the body that starts really early in the book and is threaded the whole way through. It sort of struck me that I was the only person who had noticed the way hunger is threaded throughout that book or the only person, the only kind of literary critic who'd noticed that because I was the only one who'd had that yeah. particular experience. Yeah, and then I found out much later that Christina Stead had kind of had trouble with food for a lot of her life as well, and I wasn't surprised at all. <laughs> it's buried in the text. I wonder, too, about revisiting your own work. I mean, mm. I think you as a writer are someone who develops and matures really obviously on the page. There's a progression in your work, Mm-mm-mm. particularly in the essays. And I wonder about writing The World Was Whole, how perhaps Small Axe informed that work and whether you went back and kind of reviewed where you were at when you wrote that work for the next book. I didn't I didn't really look at Small Axe again. I had a very strange year after it came out where I was talking about it a lot and reading from it a lot and I was thoroughly sick of it by the end of that. <laughs> and then a nice thing where I sort of put it away for a few years and picked it up again recently to extract something and was so pleased to have one of those experiences that you so rarely have as a writer where you read something old and go, oh, that's actually quite good. (laughs) So that was a nice thing. But I think by the time I started writing The World Was Whole, I was so much more comfortable with the idea of essays and and with the form and willing to play with it Mm. a little bit more. You know, the, the essays in Small Acts were kind of the first sustained prose project I'd ever done. And I really was kind of making it up as I went along and then kind of had this panic after it came out and read a whole bunch of stuff about the personal essay so I could figure out how to talk about what it was. <laughs> I love the idea of getting more comfortable with yeah. essays as you go along. Yeah. And I think that actually leads nicely into the writer that you've chosen, who is someone that you revisit quite a bit. Uh, I'll let you say their name and then I might do a little intro on who that person is. Yeah, I'm I'm going to be talking about Leslie Jamison today and specifically her first book, which is called The Empathy Exams. So Leslie Jamison is rather like Fiona Wright, the author <laughs> of four books, and was born in 1983. No way! Yeah. Jamison's first book was the novel The Gym Closet, published in 2010. But it was her 2014 essay collection, The Empathy Exams, that brought her to most readers' attention. That collection featured a wide array of essays that all somehow still touched on an exploration of what it means to experience empathy. She has since published a long autobiography detailing her recovery from alcohol addiction, the recovering, intoxication and its aftermath, and a new essay collection, Make It Scream, Make It Burn, was released late last year. Fiona, tell us how you came first to the work of Leslie Jameson. The Empathy Exams, I think, came out the year before Small Acts of Disappearance was released. It was towards the end of writing Small Acts when The Empathy Exams came out. So did you read it straight away and did it grab hold or play any influence on Small Acts of Disappearance? Yeah, I read it pretty much straight away. It actually came across my desk via the poet Kate Middleton, not the princess Kate Middleton, (laughs) uh, who basically sent me an all caps email that said, Fiona, you must read this. Um. (laughs) (laughs) What a good reading friend to have. Yeah, and, and, you know, Kate is an excellent reader um, and, and a wide reader herself. And she has a real skill at recommending books to people. I always trust the books that she gives me because every single one of them has been kind of spot on. And I think the link she sent me 
it was both to the book and to the end essay, which is called Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain, which is such a wonderful, bombastic title. We're going to speak specifically about <laughs> we that We are, one. yes. Yeah. Um, so that was actually the first essay that I read. And it kind of relieved me of, of a big anxiety I had about small acts that I hadn't even realised I'd been carrying, which was this idea that it was self-indulgent and... Um, so, so it was about legitimacy in a way. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, it, it made me feel much more okay with what I was doing and even kind of floated the idea that it might actually be important. Mm. Mm. Uh, you are one of the few people I know. In fact, you're probably the only person I know uh, that has read The Gin Closet, the earlier <laughs> novel. Uh, do you think she was doing anything in that work of fiction that then carried across? I mean, you've been a po- poet who's moved across into essay. Mm. I'm sure some people would say there are elements of Fiona's work and identity that are in those poems that, that move across to the essays. Was there anything about that novel that Yeah, that thematic thematic links, absolutely. The characters in the gin closet are alcoholics, both of them, and it's, it's sort of about a younger woman and her grandmother uh, and the younger woman... I think also has kind of a difficult relationship with food and this sort of sense of uh, what Jamison writes about a lot of the time as as an inarticulate or formless sense of pain. You know, Mm. she doesn't quite know who she is or how to be in the world. And, you know, so so I think it is kind of very much interested in women's suffering and women's bodies um, in addiction uh, and in kind of what it means to watch those things happen as well a kind of sense of witness and I think those themes kind of go the whole way across her books well speaking of which you wrote a Walkley Award (laughs) nominated review of The Recovering for the Sydney Review of Books and I just want to quote from it this is a quote that you pulled uh, from from Leslie Jameson for a long time I'd thought of my drinking as the opposite of anorexia and abandon rather than restriction but I was beginning to see that my relationship with drinking was a direct extension of those restrictive days. Starving myself meant resisting an endless longing, and drinking meant submitting to it. Drinking felt like the opposite of restriction. It was freedom. It was giving in to wanting rather than refusing it. And then you, Fiona, write, for some reason, even though I've thought so often and for such a long time about my illness, this connection, starvation as resisting desire, had never before occurred to me, but reading it here made so much such terrible sense. Because what is hunger if it isn't desire? I just have to ask, what is it like to connect with a contemporary like mm. that and, and to connect with another writer who clarifies your thinking in that way. It's, it's my favourite thing about reading, actually, and about writing in a sense too, but I think you feel it more powerfully as a reader because you're kind of getting the kind of finished end of it rather than the beginning end of it. I talk about them sometimes as like moments of recognition or, or these little kind of moments of connection where a writer is able to articulate something that you've kind of known or, or kind of had a vague sense of but haven't had the words for and I and they're such powerful powerful moments and I, I I kind of think they're the reason that we read fiction as well as non-fiction that that those sort of um what we learn about other people and what we learn about ourselves in those little those little sparks are you know really really important and I think Jamison talks about that specifically um as as something that she's most interested in in the essays of form this idea of mirroring or that there's an, a particular sort of empathy that that the essay form enables 
Um, so it's a kind of form and subject matter kind of thing for her. No, definitely. Um, yeah, and she it's a wider discussion around mirror neurons, which are the part of your brain that activates when you watch someone do something and it kind of sparks the same brain activity. Um, yeah, the empathy exams is so interesting because yeah. it is about engendering empathy as a topic, but then it also does that for the reader. Kind of incredible in that way. Perfect segue. So you've suggested uh, that we talk today about two essays from the empathy exams yeah. uh, to discuss as pieces that you regularly revisit. The first being the title essay from the collection and the second being uh, the aforementioned Grand Unified Theory of Female Pain, which is the one I think gets quoted the most out of the collection. Yeah, by me, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just your quotes that have come up into my head. I, I, still, I, I, can't get over, I still can't get past that title. It's such a baller move. <laughs> pretty bold. Uh, and in fact, I think most people would suggest these are the two strongest pieces in the book. Yeah, I think so. And they actually serve as the bookends as well. They're the first essay mm-hmm. and, the, and the final essay. Uh, why have you chosen these two pieces in particular? Well, the empathy exams I, I chose because I think it's such a good demonstration of what Jameson is so um, excellent at as an essayist, which is threading together what she calls different kinds of evidence. So there's a personal story in there. There's there's kind of neuroscience in there. So the empathy exams takes its title from some work that Jameson did as a medical actor. So, Tef- yeah, so she... Yeah, so a medical actor, as in she pa- gets paid to be sick. So she's given a medical condition and a list of symptoms and has to act them out in front of medical students so that they can be tested uh, on trying to correctly diagnose the fake patient in front of them. Yeah, that essay then soon depart diverts into taking in Jameson's own experiences in the medical world, namely an abortion and a heart operation that took place in the same year. Did you feel like you'd found a contemporary there as well in terms of of Jameson writing so much about the medical world and like butting up against it in a way? I'm writing more and more about the butting up against medical systems, I think. And that was because I think my experience at that time, I kind of swallowed what I was being told by doctors for Klein and Sinker because I was just so beside myself and desperate for help and they were the experts and, you know, and it's, it's only kind of with time that I've been able to kind of get a bit of distance it's on that of, and yeah any, any game more of a literacy the more you're in that yeah system, exactly the more you've you know and particularly if there are frustrations I mean we have a mutual friend who's had a lot of experiences with the medical world as a, as a patient as such and she's got this great point that is like she just wishes every doctor at least had one elective that was in cultural studies. Well, there, there are a lot of courses a lot of universities offer medical humanities now which is kind of basically they get taught to read texts by writers who are sick, which I just think is incredible. That's that's a great initiative. Yeah, yeah. And I think it sort of ties in nicely here because Jameson's work as an actor, they're both like they're scoring the trainee doctors both on their ability to come to a diagnosis and the actors have to give them a score for empathy and personableness, which I think is is wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, but you're right. You only learn how to navigate the medical system by being in the medical system, which is kind of one of its great frustrations to me. But I think that this is also like a really formally playful essay too. Yeah, that... that's what I kind of wanted to talk about. I didn't love this essay the first time I read it when the book mm. came out and I kind of moved quickly through the rest of the collection. But And I think part of that had to do with there's sort of a comic register in it. Like her voice is a little bit, it's not snarky at all. Not, not That's completely the wrong word, but... 
there's a kind of comic tone perhaps to the playfulness of the scenario that she's in and then it takes a really sharp yeah. turn into her personal history. So it, it is a tonally a tricky essay in mm-hmm. a sense, but rereading it as we're trying to challenge ourselves to do, I, di- I did appreciate it a lot more. I, th- I think now rereading it, something I didn't pick up the first time was I think she's kind of playing a little bit too with the idea of the body as a text and what it means to ask doctors to read you know symptoms and and make meaning out of those which is a really fraught process you know and she's really interested too in in miscommunications the kind of conversation she had with her medical team and the things that she was trying to say to them about being scared or ambivalent about certain procedures or and having them not actually be able to hear at the the kind of stuff about her as a human being that wasn't about her as a as a body mm, true mm. and she you know like she unpacks her own feelings about those situations she doesn't let herself off the hook Mm-mm-mm. i think some people might have a criticism of leslie jameson in as much as she jumps ahead of people's criticism she's very fierce and hard on herself and it's in a literary sense that means it might be hard to to come up with anything to say against her not that that's why you should read things and <laughs> look out but you know it i think that might have been what I struggled with the first time I read it. Is it's a hard voice that she moves into, yeah, with and a hard eye to herself. I feel like it's a hard line to walk as a writer too, because I know I've got that impulse too, and I think it comes from that particular sensibility of, or, or sensitivity, is what I mean. Um, that fear that what you're writing about may actually be, you know, indulgent or unimportant or like why are you dwelling on these wounds is, is kind of the way she'd phrase it, I think. That horrible or, comment. I think it's in the he, next essay, yeah, but the horrible yeah. comment, the wound dweller. You're a the wound, wound dweller, dweller. yeah. She, she manages to turn that around and turn it into a bit of a comic moment. Yeah, so. yeah. And I, and I wonder if that isn't something that is a gendered thing in some ways too, that as women we're so used to second-guessing ourselves and being quiet and being compliant and not bothering people. I think it's your own experience, what you were saying before about the legitimacy, you know, trying to find a legitimacy for a project that was completely legitimate, was Mm -mm. was necessary in so many, was more than legitimate in that sense. Yeah. That that inner voice kind of silencing. Well, and I I think too, for me, it had something to do with the specific illness Mm -hmm. too, that there's so much in eating disorders that we're taught is shameful and selfish and something that you're supposed to keep secret and the illness kind of insists on secrecy too it's a it's a weird doubled thing in that sense but you know and I didn't really realize that I was ashamed of the illness until I was writing small acts and in fact writing the book was the best way to deal with that it turns out yeah this sort of internalized well ableism in some sense but but I also think it's misogyny um you know because they're illnesses that mostly happen to women I'm learning more and more that illnesses that mostly happen to women are the ones that we don't understand as well and that I think still have kind of a lot of stigma attached to them. Your work is kind of travelling in that direction. It is, yeah. essay that was the cover essay of Mianjin published recently that, that called Hysteria that looked into medical history in a way and medical terminology and started to unpack. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm just getting angrier. Yeah. <laughs> It's okay, take it out, take it out, take it out on the air. Jameson writes something in the acknowledgements of the book that I'd, I'd like to get your response to. She says she feels an abiding and evolving gratitude to the essayist uh, Charles de Ambrosio, the author of Loitering, 
Uh, and she says, he taught me early that the problem with an essay can eventually become its subjects or subject rather. There's something about that, this quote that makes me immediately think of your work. Mm. Do you think she's re- referring here to a structural problem or is there some problem in thinking that needs to be resolved through essay writing that already exists somewhere? Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I, I, I say this all the time, but a lot of my essays start by this idea that there are two ideas. I, I kind of come across two ideas or two or more incidences in, in my life and I, can, and I know that they're connected somehow um, and can't quite nut that out. And figuring that out is, is the problem, right? And that's the, the thinking that is the thread mm. of, of the essay. I love the idea of like essays trying out a train of thought that, you know, the really old sense of the word. You mean generative in terms of like creating the narrative that a personal essay needs to carry it along is, is, is trying to find yeah. solutions, but to, to... Well, to ask questions. Yeah. And that's what I like about them, that you can ask a whole bunch of questions without having to resolve them. It's very clear that Jameson is, is taking that approach in the next essay uh, that you wanted to talk about the, the yeah. grand unified theory of female pain, just such a pleasure <laughs> to say. This is a kind of like orchestral, symphonic work of cultural criticism, taking in responses to poetry, television, music. How did you encounter this work? And and I don't know, I feel like this is the one you do go back to more this than is the, the one others. I, yeah, I do go back to this again and again because when I first read it, it felt like a call to arms. It felt like it was saying to me, pain is important or pain is not unimportant you need to own it. The kind of central problem of the essay, I think she sums up somewhere as saying like the problem with with women's pain is that it's it's a cliche, but underneath that cliche are still women who are hurting. And we need to be able to deal with that, to kind of honor the women that are hurting. You know, I think I think Jamison's really interested in. She had an essay out recently. I think that was called something like "On the Literary Sad Woman," yeah. <laughs> which I I think this comes up in in her newest book, "Make It Scream, Make It Burn." She's happy now, um, <laughs> <laughs> and is kind of having to think back this idea of how to sculpt a, a new identity away from the literary sad woman, <laughs> which I think is like quite a nice problem to have. Do you feel that in terms of your own work, like, you know, wrestling with past? I worry about it sometimes, but I also think that one of the things I like about personal essays, I think, is that, like, they change because you change. And that's really interesting mm. to me, too. There's sort of sort of lines towards the end where she starts talking about this idea of, like, jaded approaches to pain and, and cynicism and a kind of cynical disowning of your own pain, which I know I've been, I was guilty of probably before I started writing Small Axe. I think it was, you know, while I was very sick, it was just kind of like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And, and that's all such a cliche anyway, so fuck off. <laughs> and it's, a, it's sort of a, it's a much more vulnerable place to be really to kind of yeah. accept it and sit with it. And yeah, I think honour is a good word. One of the things that did interest me about this essay is, is, is the references within. Jamison writes about Susan Sontag's illness as metaphor, which I'm sure you've written about uh, somewhere Yeah, before. I've come back to that. I think I've written about somewhere <laughs> before. I feel like writers and particularly writers who have experiences of chronic ill health are just going to be unpacking this essay forever. It did make me wonder, though, about that idea of contemporaries and when you are kind of using the same source material and going to the same Mm-mm-mm. kind of references or, or reading material to, to pull out different ends and different kind of uh, 
responses. But I wonder what, how you feel about this kind of collectivity uh, of, of being a writer who, who reads widely. I feel like in a way sometimes you, you have to touch on the same material too. I, I can remember an essay I wrote recently. Oh, no, it wasn't an essay. It was a grant application. Oh, how fun. <laughs> That's an essay of a kind, an yeah, essay no I one know, wants right? to read. Ugh. It was a grant application and I was kind of writing about some of the ideas that I wanted to deal with and I, and I showed it to my editor, Nick Tapper, um, who is an excellent reader. And I was like, please help. Does this make sense? Will they give me the money? And he was like, "Oh, you've you've got to talk about, you've got to talk about Sontag here, or it looks like a glaring omission." Um, <laughs> and, and he was right. In a sense, there are some that you just kind of have to touch to touch on as like your, I don't know, it feels like an almost academic duty, mm. doesn't it? Impossible not to, in a way. Yeah, yeah. And I think Sontag in particular, that's such a um, juicy. Mm. And I mean, I guess if you don't write about them, you're you're kind of writing around them. Yeah, in a way that could be yeah. Kind of awkward. And, and, you know, that particular essay, I get so much out of every time, every time I read it too. Well, it sounds um, like you get as much out of Sontag as you get out of Leslie Jameson and vice yeah. versa. <laughs> uh, do you have any final thoughts or, or a piece that you'd direct people to other than these two essays we've talked about? Hmm. The other essay I, I really liked recently is uh, one of the final essays in the new collection, Make It Scream, Make It Bur- Burn. And I can't remember the title of it, but it's about pregnancy and I I really like it because it kind of circles back to the discussions of anorexia that are kind of threaded through the empathy exams too. Leslie Jamison has a history of anorexia too and this kind of sense of that kind of shadow self I think she calls it sort of sitting within her still and, and suddenly being activated again by the kind of extreme hunger that comes with the the early stages of pregnancy both being activated by it and kind of feeling like it's a finally shedding yeah, that self too it's a yeah it's a really interesting essay and it kind of has this beautiful structural thing where she's speaking directly to the fetus I guess and it kind of goes you know when you were the size of a poppy seed when you were the size of the blueberry when you were a size of an orange a grapefruit like which is like kind of made me kind of go that's so weird that we always talk about developing babies in terms of food it's very strange <laughs> The rereaders uh, traditionally ended uh, with a recommend that could be absolutely anything. Our beloved uh, co-host Dion Kagan once recommended Black Tahini to our audience, which is the devil, by the way. <laughs> not That's... Dion. The you not would Dion. Dis- Dion's, you would disagree Dion's with lovely, that. but Black Tahini is an anti-recommend. <laughs> so that's how we're going to end the show, Fiona. What would you like to recommend to listeners? I have been rereading Beverly Farmer's uh, A Body of Water because it's going to be re-released later this year. But I read it, I first read that years ago when I was at uni as well and I'd forgotten how much of a writer's book it is, that it's a book that's very much about the process of writing and it's a diary and it's drafts and it's It's the most incredible book. I'm really looking forward to the re-release because it is one of those ones that I do want to reread. It just has so much to unpack. It's got so much in it and And I think it's... It also just feels so ahead of the current curve of literary non-fiction that this book Mm -mm. precedes so much of um, what's being produced right now. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited by the idea of sort of so many of the wonderful young essayists we have coming, you know, coming up in this country kind of reconnecting with it or connecting with it for the first time too. I think it's going to blow a bunch of people's minds. Yeah, hopefully it starts a great conversation yeah, around genre. Yeah. I'm going to recommend uh, Death to Book Clubs. I'm going to recommend <laughs> 
movie clubs. Ooh. Getting a, a set group of people and going out to a movie, maybe on cheap movie night, Monday or Tuesday. And yeah, just kind of like using that as a book club because I feel like, you know, the unsaid thing uh, that we're not talking about is reading is labor intensive. Mm-mm. I find book clubs a bit. I don't want to read the same thing as everyone else. I don't want to be prescriptive about what I'm reading. Well, I've got and everyone, so much reading to do anyway. Every book club I've been to too, you've always rocked up and it's kind of like a uni tute where you have to start with, okay, who's done the reading? <laughs> one of my favourite book clubs ever was uh, one of one of the members, He Who Shall Not Be Named, was uh, lying on the couch when we all uh, walked in and was halfway through the book and was like, no, I'll get it finished by the time <laughs> dinner's on. Anyway... So Movie Club is much easier. And also, as a side recommend, uh, there is the Letterboxd app, which I only discovered a couple of years ago, but you can log uh, movies on that app and it's it's super useful if you're, if you're kind of like wanting to... If you forget to, what you've watched. If you forget what you've watched. Yeah, just kind of those diary apps. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so thank you, Fiona. Thanks for coming in. And, thank you so and much for having us. me, Sam. I think you're going to sit in on some future episodes, which is very exciting. I would exciting. love to do that. Thank you. This has been The Rereaders. The Rereaders is recorded on Gadigal land, land that was never ceded. We pay our respects to First Nations elders past, present and emerging and recognise their millennia-old tradition of storytelling, which so clearly informs the literary production done in this country today. Our thanks to FBI Radio 94.5 in Sydney for supporting us. The Rereaders is produced by the wonderful Martin Rays. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Rereaders. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Thanks for listening again and welcome back. And we hope you can join us again soon. Bye.